iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're here with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Joining us in the studio today, it is Tom Roddy from The Times. Coming up, we're going to look back on a busy week of Champions League action. But first, there really is only one place for us to start, and that is at Anfield. The champions Manchester City trail Jurgen Klopp's side by six points ahead of Sunday's top-of-the-table clash at Anfield. City took four points from Liverpool last season, including a goalless draw on Merseyside that they might have won had Riyad Mahrez not blazed a second-half penalty over the bar. But City are playing catch-up in the title race again, with some suggesting Pep Guardiola's men must go to Anfield and win, a feat that hasn't been achieved by any side since Sam Allardyce's Crystal Palace were 2-1 winners back in April 2017. Klopp's team went the entire 2017-18 and 2018-19 seasons with without defeat at Anfield in the league. So it is a very tough task for the champions. But, Tom and Gregor, do we think already this is a must-win game for City? I mean, for me, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily must-win, but it's possibly a must-not-lose, if anything. I mean, that opens up the, the nine-point gap that allows Liverpool to, to, to really get going. But I think City's... Um, next few games across November and December. I think that if they're nine points behind and they've got uh, Chelsea in November, they've got Arsenal, United and Leicester, who are such a force at the moment, as well as those Champions League and EFL Cup games, being behind by such a large amount, uh, I think is possibly an insurmountable um, gap for them. So I think for me, it's a it's must not lose. I agree. Mm-hmm. I think... If they if they were to lose, it would be all but over. Nine points is is a huge gap, especially the kind of shape that Liverpool are in and the troubles, the sort of injury troubles that that Manchester City have, particularly in in uh, centre defence. Um, but I think you know Liverpool uh, January last season were I think seven points clear, mm-hmm. um, and obviously we know how that ended last season. So and that's further on in the season. So there's a lot of football to be played, and if if as long as Manchester City don't lose this game, they're definitely still in the race. 
Well, let's get more ahead of Sunday's top of the table clash then with the Sunday Times football correspondent Jonathan Norcroft, who joins us now. And Jonathan, you've heard what Gregor and Tom have had to say on whether or not this is a must win or a must not lose game for Manchester City. Where do you stand on that? Fascinating dynamics for both teams in terms of how much do they go for it and and how much do they uh, try and protect, you know, because there's that risk reward thing. I, I suspect both teams might be happy with a six point gap, actually. At this stage, but from a city point of view, I agree it's a must not lose. It'd be disastrous with the fixtures they've got if they did. And I get the sense that that what the you know they've got this huge problem defensively that, that Gregor alludes to that that they have to try and get through to the January transfer window as intact as possible with a manageable points gap. Try and do something and and, and try and come again. And I, I suspect that might be at the centre of of Guardiola's thinking going into this, plus the fact that, you know, last year he found a formula to, to perform well at Anfield and almost nicked the game. And I'd be, you know, I'd be surprised if he was um, uber positive in this one. I think it will be a safety first. So looking at both teams going into this one, if you were to side with either team that could get a positive result out of this one, Tom, who would you make the case for? I would probably go on on the Liverpool side. I actually don't, think it's um i think it's f- far from a foregone conclusion that 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 they win even though the uh, the kind of history goes on liverpool's side at anfield um but i think liverpool defensively they they haven't kept a clean sheet at anfield this season they've not kept a clean sheet in in eight games and and, and although it in- includes that ridiculous 5-5 in the <laughs> in the carabao cup um they have conceded uh, 14 goals in that amount of time so um it's it's a breachable defense uh, so i think there's definitely and and you know with the attack that guardiola's got sterling's got 18 goals in 20 for club and country um it's it's got all the ingredients for a for a one of those classics as we said before we spoke to you jonathan um the mm. res, the, the record that liverpool have at Anfield it is quite formidable and no one has beaten them there since Crystal Palace were 2-1 winners back in April 2017. But if you go further back than that, Manchester City haven't won there since May 2003. It is a hmm. fortress, no doubt about it. Very much. I love the, um, the the sort of symmetry. That we might have a, a progression from Sam Allardyce to Pep Guardiola. <laughs> <laughs> the next one to to win at Anfield. But yeah, it's become it's become the fact. It's, it's Liverpool's starting point, isn't it? They've they've accrued this incredible <clears throat> self belief and resilience that that we see now, week after week. And I saw it the weekend against um, Aston Villa. And I think it started with um, the, the the home form with Klopp. Um, making Anfield the fortress to use that cliche but he really did focus on that because he focuses so much on the the kind of synergy between crowd and players and coaching staff and and the kind of the energy thing and and that that was his that was his that was a starting point for it all I think there's something very very powerful there at Anfield obviously and um you know whether they like it or not it is in city's heads um you know the, the, it, Guardiola's really not far away from talking about buses every time he talks about Liverpool. You can see it's still in his mind. Um, and, you know, yes, they did really well at Anfield last year, but they kind of did well because they they decided not to be Manchester City. So it's a factor. That Anfield factor is 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 definitely there. And um, it's how much that can that can be brought to bear from a Liverpool point of view on, on Sunday may have a, a big influence on this one with City's problems. 
Jonathan, you mentioned about the fact, kind of fascinating how uh, how the how both teams approach the game. The most noticeable yeah. thing last season at Anfield was that Pep Guardiola, the fullbacks were much kind of more restrained and didn't go forward as much. Played played much yeah. more kind of narrow to prevent the Liverpool's front three from finding spaces. Do you feel that that's likely to be the same approach again? It's not something that Guardiola does against any other team, really. Kind of tailor his approach. No, but I I think it will be Gregor because. In, in, you know, in particular, if, if there's a weakness in in Liverpool's makeup, um, attacking-wise, it is that they rely so much on those fullbacks, Alexander Arnold and Robertson, to to create for them. Well, you know, workmen like midfield create fullbacks, and um, they have struggled in games where the the opposition have just sort of focused on curbing the fullbacks and not pushing up themselves and leaving space for them to attack into, and and you know. I, th- I think I think Guardiola has to play that way. I think he has to because he can't be so certain about how his central defence is going to stand up. So the last thing he wants to do is be weak out wide as well. Um, yeah, so I, I, I you know, I, I think he almost played in the break last year, didn't he? And, and um, that that will surely be the way for him to go again. But I mean, it seems foolish trying to sit here and second guess Pep Guardiola. To be <laughs> honest, it's just, it's just if I was Pep, that's probably what. I would do. <laughs> Okay, so that's how you might set up if, if you were Pep Guardiola then going to Anfield. But as Tom mentioned, Gregor, Liverpool's defence have not looked at their best, not the defence that we have of recent times recognised as one of the best in the world. They have a, a real cause for concern when it, when it comes to their lack of clean sheets, just three from 19 games in all competitions so far. What is going wrong, if you like, with Liverpool's defence? I don't know if anything's particularly going wrong. I just think they they set such a benchmark last season and the sort of impact that Van Dijk and Alisson's arrivals made was so startling that, you know, we're, we're looking at it now and, and comparing. There, you know, there was an issue earlier in the season where it looked like they were playing a higher line and, mm. and teams were getting behind more. I think that's broadly kind of evened itself out. They're not, it's not really, it doesn't seem quite as much of an issue as, as much anymore. Um, but we have, you know, we've talked a lot about Manchester City's weaknesses here. They've still got Raheem Sterling banging form, De Bruyne tearing through defences. You know, surging runs from midfield as we saw uh, in the Champions League this mm. week. Um, who's still probably the best player in the Premier League, and and the, the kind of attacking combinations that Manchester City still put together that are going to be a huge test for Liverpool. So it's you know it's not going to be a case of uh, them sitting in and trying to absorb Liverpool's pressure. They're going to be going to be a real test for Liverpool as well. Well, it's interesting, as you say, we've, we've focused on the defensive troubles for Manchester City, but as you say, in attack, they are still fantastic. And, and Jonathan, I think they've scored mm-hmm. 34 goals, seven clear of Leicester as the top flight's top scorers, and nine ahead of Liverpool. And it just seems so effortless, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's just a routine thing. A game that really struck me was Aston Villa, was at City um, when Villa went to the Etihad. Villa played really, really well for the first half, 0-0. And they end up getting beaten three 0 Could have been four or five. Um, City were only really on, you know, on song for forty five minutes. But they they can just cause such devastation in that period, uh, in that small period that that, that you know, they can put anyone away. And yeah, they the the you know De Bruyne has been fabulous. Aguero seems to you know keep even getting better, which is weird. Um, and Sterling's. Sterling's terrific. The, I think the, the the one worry they might have attacking wise is Bernardo's been very much out of sorts, um, certainly in the last month or so. And and David Silva, uh, I think is showing a few signs of of age and mortality. 
which which really? slightly weakens him. <laughs> I really? think so. I mean, I mean, gosh, that could be made to look really stupid. <laughs> I, I think he's incredible. I think he's maybe the best foreign player in the Premier League. Um, but he's just been slightly off his his, his best for me um, in the last uh, in the last month or two. But then he's it might just be physical. You know, he's, I think he was out in midweek, and uh, it might might just be the case of getting rested up. I think the other thing is that. The, the issues we've discussed about central defence means that they're losing Fernandinho, potentially yeah. Rodri if he's fit, because um, they have to drop back. You know, mm. these are they're huge, hugely yeah. kind of key figures for breaking up uh, attacks. Um, so I think mm. you know the the defensive issues is the is the kind of the yeah. deal breaker I think for Manchester City at the moment. They need to get the as Jonathan said, get to January with still a surmountable kind of gap, um, and then you know I'm sure they'll add someone in, in January. Also, we've got we've got the Edison situation, of course, as well. That if if you know if if he can't play, or if he's playing with a bit of a muscle injury, I mean, he's so important to them from an attacking point of view yeah. with the the distribution as well. Um, so, you know, yeah, few issues. Well, even before the Champions League group games this week, Pep Guardiola was already looking forward to Sunday. He kicked off proceedings by labelling Sadio Mane as a diver following Liverpool's last-minute 2-1 win over Aston Villa, in which Mane scored the final goal but was also booked for simulation earlier on in the match. The City boss made his comments during a post-match press conference after watching his team beat Southampton, which kicked off at the same time as the Liverpool match. Jurgen Klopp, in turn, rejected the criticism of Mane and questioned how a manager would find time post-match to know about such details and the result of another game at the same time as his. Klopp aimed his own dig at City by claiming he wouldn't mention tactical fouls. But when pressed about it, he said, no comment, I don't put oil on the fire. What do we make of these mind games, should we call them, Tom? What do we make of it between Klopp and Guardiola? It started early. Uh, yeah, I think... I think- uh, Guardiola's trying to get under Klopp's skin. I think the 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 way, um, as we were, we were just talking about, the way uh, Liverpool have, have City have got so many disadvantages heading into this, the the deficiencies in defence and the the I know the Edison situation came in midweek after this, but I think he's trying to get under his skin. He's trying to get under Mane's skin as well, trying to get that possible one percent out of Mane that um, that that can get him off his game um and i think as well that this may be for us as well in the media this is kind of what's been what's been missing this kind of rivalry and the the needle between these two managers that will make this the this the epic uh rivalry going forward even off the pitch because it's been it's been fascinating on it interesting you mentioned there about it being this epic rivalry going forward uh, jonathan do you think now this is the biggest rivalry in english football Oh yeah, without a doubt, it's, it's the best rivalry since um, since Arsenal versus United in, mm. in, in that heyday. It's it's, it's fabulous because it's it's such a multifaceted rival rivalry. It's you know it's it's on and off the pitch. I'm doing something at the weekend looking at how they've operated off the pitch in terms of recruitment and ride with each other. You've got all the the, the fans. There's a narrative now between the fans where um, you know they, they they really do snipe at each other constantly on on social media, and then this this kind of fascinating relationship between two managers who clearly admire each other clearly respect each other but in the heat of competition us getting a little bit um further away from that and yeah more of this please you know come on, <laughs> more, 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 more mind games i mean that 
that, that that's that's surely good for our business. It, I thought it was interesting, <laughs> Pep's Pep's comments. So one thing I'd say is that maybe he didn't come out very well personally in terms of his image, but from a practical point of view, he's put um, he's put a question in the mind of the referee, and it, remi- it reminded me of Fergie didn't mind how he came across sometimes, or Mourinho never minded how he came across. It was about the kind of you know brutal pragmatism of of, of what the words might do, and I, I think even just by saying it. Pep has just got that little thing out there now that that you know will be somewhere in in the background of Mike Oliver's mind. I'm not saying it's going to affect him, but the the, the little seed has now been been planted. <laughs> I completely agree, Jonathan. But the only thing I thought about it as well is that it kind of it kind of struck me as a Guardiola who felt a little bit out of control ahead of this yeah. game as well. That um, you know that was immediately after City's game, and mm. he'd clearly had a focus and an eye on what had happened in the Liverpool game more than just the result, more than just mm. whether City uh, whether Liverpool had won. And of course, the last time you know they've won back to back trophies, and the the last time. Guardiola possibly had a, a rivalry with a manager like this was was Mourinho uh, with Barcelona yeah. and and Real Madrid and 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 such a rivalry once even though it was a different and and a bigger kind of needle in it with the way it ended was was Mourinho winning the league and 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 <laughs> Guardiola going so you know if it in, I just wonder what will happen if it if it, if Liverpool do win the league this way yeah you don't mm-hmm. get the impression that he's a particularly good loser. Um, he doesn't like being behind doesn't like chasing um, and he's used to winning generally so I agree I think you know there's been a lot of off field and sort of inter-club issues and and needle and rivalry but it's all been very polite on the kind of on the touch lines and the, the mutual respect and and sort of admiration for what each other each other's teams do and they play very different style of football but they're you know both right at the top of of of, uh, European football really um, so yeah, more or less, yeah, definitely. The, the other thing, of course, was when um, when City lost at Norwich. Um, I believe that, that that Pep walked into the press room and the first thing he said was, "Congratulations, Liverpool." <laughs> and the fact that his mind wandered to Liverpool on, on, in that moment again was another little tell. You also can't, you, you know, Klopp can't help himself when these things are put to him. You know, the little statements about <laughs> pouring oil on the fire and saying, "My brain's not big enough to kind of start considering the other team when I've still still got to do all the <laughs> press after the game and you know think about how we've played and whatnot." <laughs> you, you, you are, I think, you know, you're definitely thinking about how Manchester City have done as mm. soon as you come off. He's sort of protesting too much there, I think. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, before yeah. we let you go, I've got to ask you, who do you think will come out on top on Sunday? I think it's going to be a boring draw, and I hope it's not. <laughs> After all that! Not. I know, I hope Can we do not. a retake on that one, please? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be amazing, it's going to be 5-5. Five, five. I, just, I, I just think that the pragmatism, because I said earlier, both teams may just be happy for diff- slightly different reasons with a, with a draw, but, you know, I hope, I hope it's not. I hope they go for it, because there's weaknesses there for both teams and it could be a classic if they actually do well our thanks to Jonathan Norcroft there who mentioned the injury to the City goalkeeper Edison which may well be a huge boost for Liverpool in their chances of getting victory at Anfield on Sunday Uh, Edison had to be withdrawn at half time in their draw with Atalanta on Wednesday in the Champions League Pep Guardiola said of the injury is a muscular problem. It was a risk, so we took him off as he was feeling it late in the first half. And asked whether or not he'll be fit for Sunday, Guardiola said, I don't know. Well, as a result of that injury, uh, Claudio Bravo came on to replace Edison. He was then sent off in the game against Atalanta, then in the Champions League, which meant, of course, 
who would come on to replace Bravo in goal. And it was um, the substitute Carl Walker that was chosen to go in goal <laughs> uh, and actually did all right in the end. Sure did. uh, didn't concede a goal. Got us thinking about other outfield players that have had to go in goal. I was speaking to Glenn Johnson a little bit earlier on, and he was telling us a story about how he actually had to go in goal in an FA Cup match against Newcastle. This was up at St. James's Park. It was quite late on in the game, and it was a similar situation in that uh, Carlo Cudicini got sent off, but they'd already used all their substitutes, so there was no, no way of bringing on a substitute goalkeeper. So it was, well, who goes in goal? And I'm thinking that Glenn Johnson is going to tell us the story of, well, Jose Mourinho is the manager at the time. He's turned around to Cla- uh, to Cudicini and gone, well, Glenn was great in, in training. He's he's played a number of times in goal, so he's the perfect person to, to put in goal right now. And Glenn said, that wasn't the case at all. It was just that I was in the wrong place at the wrong time because Carlo Cudicini just walked past me and gave me the gloves, so I had to go in goal. <laughs> and that was it. And he actually did pull off a save from a, a Laurent Robert free kick as, as a result of the, um, the sending off. But um, outfield players in training, Gregor. Do they love the opportunity to go in goal? There's always one or two, yeah. I mean, uh, Phil Jagielka was also, mm. also another one who... It was kind of the game was, was brought up when uh, Sheffield United played Arsenal recently because they played, I think it was seven years ago, and uh, Jagielka had to go in for like the last 20 minutes. And it was interesting reading that he, almost at the end of, I think a couple of days a week, he would go and spend maybe half an hour at the end of training with the goalkeepers and do a proper session. You know, put, he'd properly practice. Um, Talk about prepared. I know, yeah, yeah. But he, Warwick never played a, you know, had a goalkeeper on the bench. Um, so I've never, you know, I've never seen it to quite that extent, but there was always, you could always tell who in the team would be the guy to go in goals. Mm. It was the guy who was giddy as anything, full of energy, always, you know, when training's finished, you couldn't get him off the training field. He would be sometimes pulling the gloves and going dive, dive around in the mud and, and love it. Um so and I would I kind of imagine that Kyle Walker could be, could be <laughs> that guy. So I'm not surprised it was him, and obviously he he did pretty well for his well, team. Well, as a result, Kyle Walker has become the first English goalkeeper to make a Champions League save in nearly three years. <laughs> um, it was actually if you have to go back to Ben Hamer in 2016, who was the last Englishman to do so uh, in the Europeans Premier Cup competition but as you say you reckon he'd have been there maybe going me 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 yeah i, I think so yeah that. and uh, I think who wouldn't fa- want to be the hero i know i think the fans were saying england's number one as well so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's one of the funniest sites in football really i think it's it just, just so, so, so incongruous isn't it, it? Yeah. it looks yeah. so odd <laughs> yeah, I, I was at the Medeski, um wasn't nice, uh, nice circumstances. It was the mm. Petacek injury. Yes. But then Kudicini came on. It must be something with Kudicini, must it, <laughs> when he's around. He got injured and John Terry went in goal. Exact same thing, free kick straight away and he saved it. So, uh, yeah. I think Carl Walker did say, and I might be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure he did say after uh, the game last night that he, he's always had a moan at, at goalkeepers not, you know, catching the ball, holding on to the ball. But uh, when that first shot came from that uh, free kick, he he suddenly realised, actually, it's not that easy, is it? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, but credit to him. He managed to keep a clean sheet in the end for, for Manchester City when he was in goal, but it did finish 1-1. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.
Away from Anfield, there are some intriguing games this weekend. It all starts on Friday night as the bottom two, Watford and Norwich, do battle at Carrow Road. And Watford have been given a huge boost by the return of their captain, Troy Deeney, who is back in training, along with Etienne Capu and Ismail Assar, also on the injury comeback trail. Now, Deeney hasn't been involved since undergoing knee surgery back in August. As for the positions in the table, well, Watford sit bottom with just five points and six goals to their name from 11 games. That is the worst start to a Premier League season since QPR in 2012, who finished bottom and are a place and two points below Norwich ahead of this Carrow Road clash. Norwich come off yet another defeat. This time it was at Brighton last weekend, which means they've now picked up just the one point from their last six games. And Watford slipped to another defeat last week against Chelsea, which means they remain winless now after 11 rounds in the Premier League. We've already had a managerial change at Watford after Javi Garcia was sacked in favour of the returning Kike Sanchez-Flores. Could we realistically see another departure? Uh, yeah, at this rate, <laughs> at this rate, yeah, absolutely. And and I think it'd be uh, what coming come to mind Swansea City did it didn't they in 2016 they had Francesco Guidolin they had Bob Bradley for 85 days mm-hmm. um and then it was Paul Clement wasn't it Paul Clement came in and it's just uh, I mean it's damning for the the guys who made the decision really isn't it and and I think when I saw um Flores coming back I thought it was kind of an uninspired uh appointment because it, even though I think he's a brilliant manager the message it sent to to the to the to the rest of his team was that it was a guy who had unfinished business there and and it wasn't someone who was coming in with fresh idea it's it was someone who'd been sacked because he couldn't do the job before um so for me it felt quite uninspired and and at Watford they have the they just have peaks and troughs don't they constant peaks and troughs after Kike it was Matsari um then it was Javi Garcia and um and Marco Silva was in there and and Kike comes back in and and I look at Watford and think it's it's kind of their their luck has almost run out a little bit and I think you need to be a club more more like Bournemouth really where I look at Bournemouth and I think there's there's just a remarkable stability about the club mm. and I think that comes from the manager Eddie Howe's been there he's the I think he's the longest serving manager in the Premier League he is isn't he and I think it comes from him it's that stability they never seem to be in crisis they maybe you know flirt a little bit with the relegation zone but they never seem there never seems to be that those issues there and I think I think Watford's luck's running out a little bit I think I think when when you're in a, a kind of relegation battle you, the players look for leadership mm. And there can often be kind of two conflicting forces. There can be, you know, the club supporters. Um, they they want to see, they want to see change a lot of the time. You know, they want to either change the manager, or they want to see that he's doing something different to kind of get you out of a rut. Whereas I think often the, the opposite is true of of players. They want to see if some if they're making a change, they want to know what the logic is behind it. They want to see. I, I looked and I thought I think Watford have played eight different formations this season. It's kind of whenever whenever a coach flip flops around in sort of search of something to you know a remedy to the to their ills to their woes, players lose faith a bit in that. You know they want somebody who sticks to their principles, sticks to their beliefs, and you know knows what knows what they want, knows knows that knows how they think the team is can get out of a rut, and you know what the best team is and what the best way to play is against certain opposition. And I don't think that's been the case. Obviously, there's been a change of manager, and 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 that's he's going to come in with different ideas. But even from the from the top as well, the fact that they've made that change so quickly, and as Tom said, 
brought back somebody who was was only there a couple of years ago. Mm. <laughs> I don't, it just it doesn't smack of of kind of strong leadership. It's bizarre, isn't it? Because they actually always say never go back, don't they? Although actually, Eddie Howe is the exception, having left Bournemouth to go to Burnley mm. for a very short stint mm. and then Point, returned. Yeah. But Kike Sanchez Flores, when he left Watford, he he left them well damningly in the sense that he was very critical of the board. Um, so it's it's just. Does seem strange that they would appoint someone who was mm. so very critical of them. Yeah, and, and I th- I thought um, I thought Javi Gracia deserved more time, um, you know, getting to an FA Cup final, which of course Flores did as well, didn't he? He got them to the FA Cup semi final and then got sacked. It was because of the run at the end of the Premier League season. But um, yeah, I thought I thought Javi Gracia deserved more time, and I think as well to be winless after eleven games with the players they've got. I mean, De La Feu, Decore in midfield. Um, uh, uh, Pereira, Andre Gray. You know, I think I think we're seeing. I think we're seeing actually the kind of the cold sort of truth about some of these players is that they're you know they're average Premier League players. They're not the the, the main difference between the, a good player and the, a great player is is consistency. And they you know, as you say, Gracia got really good form at them, organised them really well last season. They were a team that had a kind of identity, and you saw that, and the players bought into it. I wouldn't say it's definitely down to him that the reason that that's kind of all fallen apart this season. I think, you know, Delafeu is someone I look at and think he's often playing for himself more than the team. Yeah. Um, look, they have had injuries, especially up front. We said Troy Deeney, uh, Welbeck came in, he's injured straight away. Really, Andre Gray is is doing very little at the moment, and you know the leading goal scorer is on one. So scored six goals all season. So that's a pretty tough problem to get around. But can their season? be turned around simply by the return of Troy Deeney or is that too much to expect from him? I think it's far it's too much to expect from him but I, I think it will be a significant even yeah. just the feeling among the team I mean he is he, he's a leader the cl- classic leader exactly the old school leader isn't he Troy Deeney um, and so I think it will have a significant impact but being winless after after 11 games and even though it's, it's six points I I feel like they're they're in real danger now, even even with Deeney coming back. I think you know you get to January, you have that opportunity, and and they've got to they've got to make changes in January if it doesn't if it doesn't change before then. I think they're signing a eighteen year old João Pedro for ten million from Fluminense, and they've done they've made some good kind of done some good dealings in the transfer market. Watford on the whole, you know, Richarlison, someone who kind of probably followed a similar path, but it's a lot to expect of somebody mm-hmm. who's eighteen. Yeah. Um, to hit the ground running. Yes, so I agree, I think they're in serious trouble. Let's turn our attentions to the EFL now. And MPs have called on the league to formally apologise to Bury FC staff and supporters after failing at every level of football governance led to the club's demise. Following a parliamentary inquiry into the crisis, the DCMS committee concluded that the EFL must share the blame for the club's expulsion from the Football League after a lengthy period of mismanagement. Bury, of course, were kicked out of the Football League in August, ending their 125-year membership. When a late takeover bid collapsed, head of the inquiry, Damien Collins, called on football's authorities to implement an urgent overhaul of their framework. Gregor. I mean, it's it's interesting what the DCMS have come out and, and said, this committee, but it's obviously too little too late for Barry. Yeah, I think, you know, the the, the story, the Barry story fades from, from memory very quickly for all apart from their, their loyal supporters, obviously. Um, but I think the, the, the biggest thing to come out of that is that lessons have to be learned because this is, you know, a football club 
as it's not died yet. It's still they're still uh, kind of clinging on for dear life. Although in limbo, they're obviously expelled from the league, but they still have a winding up order to face. I think mm. next month in court. So you know the f- future is very bleak for them. Um, as well as other clubs as well, you know, Oldham and Macclesfield yeah. and, and Bolton. Bolton nearly went as well, didn't they, in, yeah. in that period? So, well, it, these could be clubs that, you know, could, you know, as, we, as we're saying, could follow. So the findings of this committee were, you know, very important, I think, and also quite incredible. I think the standard, you know, the standard conclusion was that the EFL should pay reparations to Bury. So, like, to kind of repeat that, that the Football League, the organiser of the league, the competition, should should pay reparations to a club who who essentially the committee has found that they they played a hand in their downfall and their mm. demise or they certainly did, did very little well nothing really to to help sort of uh, rescue them um and i think you know obviously there's a, they also laid out a lot of um a lot of potential sort of reforms that that a lot of supporters have been have been talking about for many years uh but feel like they've been completely ignored Things such as an ombudsman, so you know supporters can go to an, an independent ombudsman to sort of voice their concerns. A more strict um, owners and directors test, banning owners from borrowing against fixed assets like stadiums, which essentially is is how Bury got in its in its mess in the first place. Um, and also, the, the the most important thing is that the the framework as a whole needs to be. Reformed. It needs to be. It needs to be. It needs, it needs an overhaul. And the AFL has essentially said, if you don't listen to, and sort of take heed of these these warnings, we will bring forward legislation, government legislation, uh, and sort of advise an independent body to to to, to regulate regulate the game. So that's big. And mm. obviously, there's a lot got to happen before that that ever happens. There's, as we've said, you know. Government has quite a lot on its hands right now, including an election and Brexit, and often these things get lost completely in in the wilderness. Um, but there there is the will there to to kind of listen to supporters and to say that the way that the, f- the way that football is governing itself is not working right now, and mm. something has to change, or else we will see more more clubs go to the wall potentially, like Bury. And I think the problem is that, especially at that select committee hearing the problem is that maybe there's from the the MPs on the panel there's not necessarily perhaps a, a knowledge of, of of the rules of who has to do what they have to do because you had Greg Clark sat in front of them and he said he hadn't spoken to Steve Dale the owner of Berry until um three three or four weeks before that um that that hearing so Berry'd already gone to the wall and he he hadn't spoken to them. He didn't have to speak to them, but common sense says that, that he should, mm. that the chairman of the FA should be in, in touch and, you know, protecting a club and helping it avoid, avoid you know, um, going out, out of business, essentially. Um, and as well with, with Debbie Jevons, the, the EFL chair, she, you've... They heavily criticised her, flabbergasted at the way that Dale was allowed to come in and he was only checked to be fit, you know, fit and proper owner after he's bought the club. And this is the biggest issue with it. And that was the thing they couldn't believe and quite, quite understandably that he's, he's allowed to come in. They, they chased him for it and it never, it never materialised. 
and the one thing you've got to say is that Football League have strongly kind of rebuked this and said that this is overwhelmingly due to the actions of Steve Dale and the previous owner, Stuart Day, which is true. But at the end of the day, you know, the framework exists to try and prevent clubs being taken over by people with questionable motives, shall mm. we just say. Um, and it's completely failing at the moment. So there's, there's a lot of, I think, essentially, there should have been bigger news than it was. It's a very positive step. And it's only the first step, but it, it shows that there is a will to kind of to reform the, the, the regulations of the game. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when you're hearing the Berry owner, Steve Dale, coming out and saying, I'd never really heard of Berry Football Club before I bought it. I mean, it's that should send alarm bells ringing to everybody. But at that point, he'd already bought the club. And at that point, the club was already in the trouble that it was in. But this inquiry hopefully will lead to positive changes. But it is damning. That is that is uh, sure uh, from what is a result very unfortunately being uh, thrown out of the Football League and historic day beckons at Wembley on Saturday as England's Lionesses face Germany in front of what will be a sell out Wembley crowd joining us now for more is the Times' Molly Hudson who will be at Wembley on Saturday. Uh, Molly, this is a, a truly historic moment in the women's game, isn't it, in this country? It is, and I think I spoke to Karen Carney, um, the former midfielder, earlier on in the week, and she said that it used to be every boy's dream to play at Wembley, and now <laughs> this proves that it can be every girl's dream to play at Wembley. And I think that's what you have to take out of it as much as anything else, that this is such a big moment for all of the players that have played before and never got the chance to play at Wembley, but also recognition for the efforts of, of the current team at the World Cup this summer and how much the country really got behind them. And this is visual evidence of that, I guess. Oh, it certainly is, Molly. It certainly is. And it, it's it's going to be fantastic. Can we put it into context, though, in terms of the pricing structure for this game in comparison to a men's game? Was there, is there much difference? Um, tickets are £10. Right. So a little um, bit uh, cheaper than what you'd normally pay for a men's game, let's say. Yes. Yes. Okay. So the Lionesses 1-0 win over Portugal in October ended a run of five games without a victory. Ahead of the game, England striker Ellen White has been forced to face questions about manager Phil Neville's position, but insists the squad is, is fully behind Neville, despite the team's poor recent form. Asked if the squad still had faith in Neville, despite the recent performances, White said, of course, we know what we need to do to achieve that and what it takes. Now, they have automatically qualified for the 2021 European Championships as hosts, so we'll play a number of friendly matches in the build-up, including their final game of 2019 against the Czech Republic on the 12th of November. Molly, is Phil Neville still the right man to take this team forward? Yeah, I, th I think so. It's, it's difficult to look into the results too much because they are friendlies and... We've spoken to a lot of the players this week and the World Cup has really hit them hard. The fact that they came out and they had an international break so soon afterwards, I think a lot of them wasn't quite over it. Um, and I think they are slowly getting back to the kind of form we saw them produce in the summer. I think, look, Phil is going to be the best man for the job. And also because of the time scale, you look, they've got such a small period of time to prepare now for the Olympics. They're just such a small squad of just 18 players from the whole of the United Kingdom. Um, and then, obviously, they've got the home Euros. So I think it's just a case of trying to rebuild and get back to the sort of form they were in at the World Cup. And if they can do that, then, you know, I guess a sold-out Wembley is 
the best way they could possibly do that. Uh, you mentioned the fallout from the World Cup and in some ways that will have affected a lot of the squad members. Has Phil been tinkering with his team in these uh, matches that have come after France? Um, to some extent, but probably not as much as you might imagine. I think uh, particularly this squad for this big game at Wembley, he's picked some pretty experienced players. He's, you know, you've got somebody like Lauren Hemp who's coming through and is very young, but a lot of the players are those that have probably played in these kind of stadiums before. That's another thing the players have been stressing, that, yes, it's Wembley, it's sold out, you know, up to 90,000 people, but these players are used to playing in big arenas now. They play for big clubs, they've dealt with pressure before, and I think that's part of what Phil really thought about when he was selecting this squad, because, you know, there there is a case for the occasion being too much for the players, and he's done all he can to stop that happening. Molly, I just wanted to ask a slightly different subject. The... There was some uh, I read just a couple of days ago that um, participation after the World Cup has gone up by more than eight hundred and fifty thousand to two point six million women now over uh, sixteen and over in England. Do you think that that is true? Yes, I think the the FA have done a lot of work with the grassroots system. If you look at the last World Cup when we got the bronze medal in twenty fifteen, yes there was a, a really positive public reaction, but there probably wasn't the, the capacity to really capitalise on that at grassroots level. So that's something that they were really aware that they needed to do this year, and that's been in that four-year cycle. They've really pushed hard for the Wildcats programmes, which helps young children get involved in the game, um, whether that's at school or through clubs, because, you know, a lot of girls still can't play women's football at school. So that is still a work in progress, but it is now coming to fruition, I think, and hopefully those children, as Karen Carney said, now can see that Wembley is a possibility. Molly, just finally then on the big game at Wembley for England against Germany, can they make it two wins out of two and how big a test is Germany? They can. I think on paper you'll probably say that the England team probably have a slight edge. I think Germany are second in the FIFA rankings behind the US, but they, they are rebuilding to some extent in their squad. They're in transi- transition. They're not as big of a threat as they were, say, four years ago. They went out fairly early in the World Cup this summer, so they'll be desperate to kind of prove a point, I guess. Um, but they have got dangerous players, and England will need to be better than they have been off the back of the World Cup and get back to that form that they showed in the summer if, if they want to get the win. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Tom Roddy, Jonathan Norcroft and Molly Hudson. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online or on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information and we'll be back on Monday. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. 